0: And then there's the fighter pilots and that's the trauma surgeons or the surgeons and all of us have all of us train that way to start with. Every once in a while you have to return to the training of being a fighter pilot. So if you're in the middle of something and you're about ready to crash, you, you stop all of the routine stuff and go straight into damage control, you know, get out of this.
1: Doctors bear a lot of responsibility, and none more so than surgeons who literally have their patients' lives in their hands. Pediatric surgery, when the patients are children of all ages, adds even more to the mix, both technically and emotionally.
2: Our guest today, Dr. Mary Brandt, has been a pediatric surgeon for over 33 years, as well as a mentor to many up-and-coming surgeons in the field.
1: We talked with Mary about the multitude of risks associated with surgery to the patients and the surgeons both. Even though she recently retired
2: from surgery, she's still very actively engaged in surgeon wellness. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. With Culligan's drinking water systems, you can get the ultra-filtered water you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle right on tap. Learn more at Culligan.com.
1: And we caught up with Mary at her home in Houston. Dr. Mary Brandt, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. Happy to be here.
2: Hey, Mary, it's really great to have you as a guest. I've heard wonderful things about you from Sandra, but we always like to kind of tee up our guests by asking them, you know, how'd you get started in this career? So what made you decide to go into surgery? And then, you know, there are a lot of choices there. How did you decide to specialize in pediatrics?
0: Well, it's interesting because I had a lot of people ask this question and had to think about it, but in reality, it was a moment. So I did my surgery rotation first in medical school and For those that don't know, you basically rotate in all of the specialties so you can see them all and then you decide which one you're going into. And I did surgery first because I was never going to be a surgeon, a pathologist, or a psychiatrist. And it actually, it turned out that both pathology and psychiatry were also fascinating, but this first one was surgery to get it out of the way because I knew it was the hardest, especially in that era. And I was just blown away. It's like all of the images people had painted for me about the culture of surgery and how mean they were and how they were kind of the dumb doctors in the hospital. Absolutely not. It was like this paradigm shift in my head, like in the first 48 hours. And then day three, and I still have a vivid memory of this. I'm walking in the operating room, getting ready to scrub on a case And, you know, I'm holding my hands out. The nurse puts the gown on and I'm popping my hands in the glove. And I went, oh, shit, this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. And it was just like, boom. And then I spent the rest of medical school finding anything else that I felt that way about because it was it was hard. It was very hard, especially in that era. And uh, I just I hoped there would be something else. And the pediatrics? The pediatrics came about because it's just fascinating. And we have a motto, actually, in one of our organizations that we save lifetimes instead of lives. But for me, it was one night realizing in the midst of a lot of traumas where people had been out drinking and hurt other people and hurt themselves. And it was two in the morning and I was exhausted. That if I did that the rest of my life, I could lose my empathy. And it was extremely important to me that that not be the case. And it is never the child's fault.
2: That is really fascinating to me. I had never thought of it, not taking anything away from any other kind of surgery. But if you operate on an older person, you know, there's rewards associated with that. But if you save a child's life, you literally are, you know, saving decades potentially of life in one fell swoop. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, the the other part of it is that's amazing is we're kind of the last general surgeons. We operate in the entire body in children, except brain surgery and certain specialties that do unique things that we don't. But unlike our adult counterparts, we can take care of the entire child and all their surgical needs. And that's pretty special, too. So
1: talk about the training. You talked about how hard it is. And I know, I mean, being a physician of any kind is super hard. And then... The training's probably changed over the years for and as
0: better for the better or for the worse. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, that's an interesting question because one of the other hats I've worn in my whole career is a medical educator and being very involved in education. It actually hasn't changed Oh much. And that's the problem. We still have the traditions and the same kind of time-based training instead of competency-based training that honestly were started by Halstead, who started the whole residency concept at Johns Hopkins in the late 1800s. So that part we definitely need to work on. And I think that's actually our biggest problem
2: right now. With surgery, you have to do a lot of risk management, right? You have to assess and balance the risk on behalf of the patient sometimes, sometimes right in the middle of an operation. I imagine there's a lot to learn, you know, about surgery, the mechanics of it, what's there. But how do you learn to manage those risks real time?
0: There is a couple of thoughts that I've had thinking about this a little bit. One, I have this vivid memory of a chief resident bringing all of the junior residents together one day when we had messed up some detail. And in the hospital, residents in training have a patient list, and it lists all the patients by floor, and there's notes what to do and all of that. And he chided us for not knowing some lab or something and then held it up and said, the difference between this list and the list of passengers on an airplane is that we kill them one at a time. And I still obviously remember that it was, and obviously we don't kill them one at a time, but it was part of his illustration of the responsibility that we have for the patients we take care of. When we're talking about risk of an operation, because it's the patient that's taking the risk, right? It's not really the surgeon that's taking the risk. You're bringing your training in to help them make a decision on what to do. and. 100% 100% of the time when I'm getting consent from a patient, I look at them and I say, what we're talking about here is the risk of not doing this procedure versus the risk of doing the procedure. And we need to go through both sides of that equation so you understand completely what's going on and that we have this common understanding of what the risks are.
1: So is, is that hard? I mean, personally, you're dealing, you know, you're dealing with children, so that adds that extra emotional component and of course, it's always easier to take risks for yourself than risks for other people. And so you comment the risk is all on the patient side, but yet on the surgeon side, you have to perform at 100% all the time. And so there's, there is a certain amount of risks slash responsibility there as well.
0: One day I, I was uh, doing a consent for a little boy who had a malrotation. So his it was a chronic thing, not an emergency thing. But we needed to do surgery because his intestines basically had not Returned to the abdomen when he was in utero, and the way they should, and they were essentially twisted, and so there's an operation to do that to help relieve his pain and all of that. And I went through very carefully the informed consent that we do because that's what we're talking about here is informed consent, and including that he could lose intestine and you know need other operations and have bowel obstructions. And I got all done. The mom signed it, and looked at me and said, "It must be so hard to do what you do," and specifically like talking to parents about all the things that could go wrong. And the truth is that we don't dwell in all the things that could go wrong. Once we explain them and then you have all the training, it's like, I do believe, it's like getting in a cockpit and you're completely trained to fly the plane. And you're also trained to look for all the things that could go wrong. And you've embarked together on this journey, understanding what those risks are. And so it's not hard once you practice it. It's hard initially.
2: So I would imagine there's another kind of risk here that's maybe a little more subtle, but maybe even more acute with children. And because you have so much empathy for a child, right? And that is, do you ever have a hard time managing the fine line between getting enough involved to, to help solve this patient's problem, but without getting so involved that you lose your objectivity because you care so much for this child? Is that, is that or, or do you just, sort of compartmentalize that away and you just have to take it as it is?
0: I think the key term is compartmentalization. And I think there's a lot of other professions that have to do that as well. It is a skill you have to have, particularly if things are going badly. You really have to shut things out and focus completely on how you're going to get out of that situation and make things better. But I learned, and I think you learn with time and with the right kind of role models showing you how to do this, that it's not either or. You can be completely compartmentalized about the task at hand and what you're doing medically and still be very attached to the patient and empathetic with the patient. You can't cross that line beyond empathy to become personally involved in a way that would be a detriment. That's, I think that's what you're asking. And that comes with practice. It really does. Yeah, I see. How do
1: you learn to recognize when you're at risk of crossing that line? Because I would think you're, you actually could perform less than optimal if you cross the line and you get more emotionally or personally involved, right?
0: Yeah, you know, the stereotype of surgeons is sort of being cold and aloof and all that. I think is actually particularly true early in your training because you, when you're learning how to do this, you have to figure out how not to hurt the patient. And if that means that you have to back off a little bit personally, you do. There were years, for example, that in the operating room, which, you know, you walk in as a surgeon. I mean, you've met with a family, you've met with a kid, you know their name, you know what they look like. But when you walk in the operating room, they're draped, right? You can't see their face. And most surgeons, especially early on, rarely go into the room when the patient's making that transition from being awake to being asleep and being ready for surgery. And it took me a very long time to be able to take my focus a little bit off of just where I was operating to the, where that I was operating on Jimmy, And that was much, much later in my career, probably 10 or 15 years it took to get there. You know, you keep coming back to this training
1: experience you learned over time, but at some point you're doing everything for the first time. And so how do you, how do you what protocols or tricks of the trade or approaches do you learn, you know, when you're doing all this for the first time? Because that's
0: an extra angst moment, if you will. So the actual learning the operation it really is that five year apprenticeship for general surgery where you're basically doing it with someone who's teaching you to do it. You're actually doing the procedure. So it's sort of as if you're flying the plane and the the experienced pilot is the co-pilot and always very balanced to what's best for the patient. And the most senior person is the one that's absolutely ultimately responsible. So by the time you finished your your five years of training, you have probably done the vast majority of the routine cases, multiple, multiple times. And you've learned and been tested on all of the things that might go wrong or could go wrong or anatomic differences or things that might might be a problem. The specialized stuff is in the fellowships, like in pediatric surgery, where you're learning unique anatomy, unique problems. But that being said, particularly in pediatric surgery, I don't think there was ever a month in my entire career that I didn't confront something for the first time. And what you learn is most of the time, it's a variation on a theme of something you've done before, because there's actually very simple moves of Taking things out or reconstructing things, recognizing anatomy, how you get the artery off of everything around it is the same, no matter what artery it is, pretty much. So all of that you can take into this new new thing. The other thing I did, and honestly, um, from my friends, I learned the, about the pilot's SOP, standard operating procedure, and for myself and as a teacher, I developed those for every case, and I particularly developed them for cases that were unusual or I didn't do very often or if I was doing them the first time. So I really wrote down every possible step from everything I could read, everything that might go wrong and how I was going to manage it.
2: Sounds eerily familiar to or similar to landing (laughs) on an aircraft carrier. I mean, the first time you do it, you've got all kinds of supervision. You got somebody in your backseat, maybe, and you got people watching you. You still have to do it. And it's really scary as hell. Uh, and you know, even though you get used to it, every one of them is different. And I'm sure you had the same, every surgery has to have its own unique thing that even as you're teaching it, especially as you're teaching it, you have to recognize and deal with it before it gets out of hand.
0: I think so. And you know, I've, I've, I've actually, you know, and we've used a lot of pilot analogies in surgery over the last particularly 20 years, and some of them are very good and some of them are not, but, but the one I do think is true is like a general surgeon at the end of your five years, you are like a very professional commercial pilot of like a 707, right? If you're a pediatric surgeon, you are still a commercial pilot, but of a, a highly technical train. so it's transatlantic or, or whatever. And then there's the fighter pilots, and that's the trauma surgeons, or the surgeons and all of us train that way to start with. Every once in a while, you have to return to the training of being a fighter pilot. So if you're in the middle of something and you're about ready to crash, You stop all of the routine stuff and go straight into damage control, you know, get
2: out of this. So I have a question for you. My one intersection with your world was I was privileged on an aircraft carrier to be invited in to watch an operation, which was a, it was a a hernia operation. And I was, I was, thought I was just watching it. And they actually, you know, scrubbed me up and I actually ended up holding a retractor and doing cauterization. And I even got asked if I wanted to sew, you know, clothes and i came away with the impression that you know the mechanics of doing this aren't that hard but looking into that goop and having any idea what i was looking at that has to be an amazing learning experience so so i wanted to ask you what for you was the hardest part about surgery in terms of actually doing it
0: well i think you you've sort of identified that there's level i mean you Go through levels of expertise, right? So in medical school and early on, it's very much about what's the goop, you know, (laughs) that what what are we looking at, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think the next step is you learn that in a hernia operation, you have to get to the inguinal canal, you have to open it, you have to find the hernia, you have to patch the hernia, and then you have to get out of the inguinal canal, right? So there's these steps. And you practice those over and over again. I would tell my residents on a regular basis that I wasn't interested in training safe surgeons. I was interested in training master surgeons. So safe surgeons know you go from A to B to C to D. Master surgeons actually learn how to do that with a fluidity and with an understanding that is almost like a high level of playing a sport is the best analogy I use in teaching this because it is it is about movements, but it's about efficiency of movement and beauty of movement. Because those are the surgeons that are operating so smoothly and so well that the patients just do better.
2: Huh. Ah, so like Yoda, you can say the force is strong in this one, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> this one's pretty good.
0: <laughs> well, actually, you you can. So you know, if if you look, it's you know, people joke and say every surgeon thinks they're in the top five percent. But you know, it's it's basically so does every more. fighter
2: pilot. By the way. <laughs>
0: I think there are some similarities, but I there are people that are in the five percent. The rest of everybody is doing a great job, a safe job. They're able to take off land and figure out what they're doing. But when it gets super complex, sometimes it does help to have a little Yoda. Of course.
1: That's cool. <laughs> so I want to I want to rewind for a minute because we were talking about you, you know the risks that the parents, yes, you know, the patient taking the risks, right? So. Is it difficult to communicate the risks when you're because the parent, you know, you're thinking about the emotions that the surgeon has that you're compartmentalizing for the parents? I mean, they're emotionally engaged and emotionally involved. It's their children. And so is it difficult to explain the risks to parents and
0: help them walk through that matrix? I think that truly is part of the art of medicine. And for a routine thing, my standard strategy was when we got to the point where, I had made the decision and told the family, yes, I think we need to proceed with the hernia repair, you know, and no, oh, the room gets somber, you know. And then I would look at the kid and I'd say, okay, I have two rules. These are really important. And the parents would always say, now listen, listen to her, you know, this is important. And I'd say rule number one is no shots and rule number two, you get presents. <laughs> and the kid would beam, but what more importantly is the parents relaxed with that. Oh, interesting. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, we, we've taken this incredibly serious thing, but look what she just said. And then you turn to them and you say, look, this is something that we do all the time. We do safely, but I need to explain to you things that could go wrong. And the likelihood of that is extremely low, but I need to answer all your questions so that we all feel good about going forward. And then that's why I always use the line of we're talking about the risk of not doing it versus the risk of doing it. Because you never decide to do a surgery where the risk of doing it is higher.
2: You live to embrace risk in the air, on the slopes, and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, you're not looking to take chances.
1: With cutting-edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom, Culligan's Reverse Osmosis Filtration Systems deliver the next level of hydration you need to keep working at peak
2: performance, whatever the day brings. Get started by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. So, uh, Mary, you know, I'm talking to very accomplished women in their own fields here, and I know you two have had several discussions about safety, managing risks in the operating room, and the similarities to how astronauts and their support teams approach risk management in space. So tell us about those conversations. Tell us about how you, in the past, compared the two.
0: So one of the things I began to realize, is Sandra and I talked about this, if you think about an operation like a mission, right? The steps are kind of the same. You've got to have the training. You've got to have the place and the support team to do it. But where the analogy stops then is a single flight to space is a mission that takes years and years and years and is a one-time thing. Whereas even though we have kind of the same structure of how we train and prepare and look for issues that might happen, that were the unexpected things, we're doing it 10 times a day sometimes. And so it's really, it's a magnitude of difference in terms of the danger, first of all, but also the complexity. And so similar, but not.
1: Yeah, we ha- you remember some of our conversations, just to pull in that thread, was about the, you know, like the dynamics and mission control versus the dynamics in an operating room and having very clear roles and responsibilities and procedures. And so we, we came up with a lot of parallels there, I think.
0: And the operating room, it really is a team. and it's even it's much more of a team now than it was when I first started training. When I first started training, there was the surgeon who was in charge. you know, and now it's much, much more of a team. And I think that that's kind of the same analogy. when you have the the people in in Mission Control who are providing all of the support in a very active way is a lot like the anesthesiologist and the nurses and the people that are providing the instruments and even, you know, some of the very highly technical instruments need to have experts that come in and help us troubleshoot them and, and do things. So that's, that's the similarity, I think.
2: I would think that there's another similarity. When you light off the rockets, you know, the solid bo- boosters and, and that thing starts to leave the pad, there's no going back. And when you get out there, if something goes wrong with your spacecraft, you know, you're kind of on your own. You got to fix it and i would imagine the same thing's true in an operating room once you, the incision is made and you're deeply into the operation and you find something you didn't expect it's not like oh i want to just go start over on this thing or or i, I can i want to call in some other people here i guess you could do that but i mean it, there's sort of that stepping off the cliff aspect i would think to both of them
0: yeah and i think that the you know when i was talking about the trauma surgeons earlier i think that that's the group of people and and for all of us in the middle of the night if there's Somebody who's been shot or in a horrible car accident, and you open and it's a disaster, that really is that moment of adrenaline that you have to learn how to manage and you have to get out of that situation.
1: So, how do you manage that kind of adrenaline in
0: the middle of an operation? One of the things I actually taught this out loud, and that no one ever taught me this, but I would watch people I was working with. And, you know, when you're first starting, that adrenaline is there when you're learning how to make a skin incision, you know? And what happens is their shoulders go up to their ears and they start breathing fast. And I actually would start telling them, you know, look, you, you have just totally launched your sympathetic nervous system and that is going to completely block your ability to think and do things. So I want you to lower your shoulders and take three deep breaths and watch what happens. And it works every single time. What happens with time is you begin to Channel it more, and you learn automatically how to control it, so that you're not trembling and having all of the the force of adrenaline behind the decisions you're making and what you're actually doing.
2: And you recognize when it's happening.
1: Yeah, as I say, that's that's great. You know, to know when it's happening exactly.
0: So, I do have a a story about learning about this and and thinking about this. And Sandra knows a, a good friend of ours that. After I'd known her a couple of years and, you know, for people that aren't astronauts to ask like astronauty questions of their friends is always kind of hard. But, you know, I, I asked her, I said, L- you're, listen, you're going out just in the shuttle missions in that point, going out, you're getting sent up to the top, you're laying there on your back for two, three, four hours. Like, what are you doing? And she said, well, the first time I flew, <laughs> uh, I was a rookie. So I was just checking my checklist over and over and over again because I didn't want to screw up. And the second time I flew, um, I went to sleep. And I won't say verbatim what I said, but I basically looked at her and said, you're on top of a frigging bomb and you went to sleep? <laughs> and she just looked at me kind of like a little baffled and said, well, I was the night shift. You know, I had to be rested. Yeah, And that's when it clicked that, you know, when I have to rush a child who has been shot or something in, two minutes up to the operating room and get them open and get the bleeding stopped. That's an impossible thing for her to understand. But I was the night shift. Yeah.
2: We've talked a lot about analogies between fighter pilots, astronauts, surgeons. Are there any other disciplines? Because humans do best when they learn horizontally as well as vertically. Are there any other professions, disciplines where you've learned something that helped you be a better surgeon? I'm
0: sitting here thinking, I think what it is, is more about the ability to not act in the stereotype of a surgeon, which is how I was trained. And if I look at nurses and other healers that are not as technically stressed, I guess is the way I'd put it. I think they've taught me so much about those things we were talking about earlier, about how do you talk to patients? How do you help people deal with their own risk and their own fears? So that would, off the top of my head, that's probably the one I would say.
1: All right. Well, shifting gears yet again, because I'm curious, managing risks in the operating room, right? That's part of the the facet of of being an operating team. So, how has technology impacted your ability to manage risks for better or
0: for worse in the operation, in an operating room over the course of your career? It's been profound. And I think it's mostly in monitoring. And I would say mostly on the anesthesia side. The field of anesthesia has just expanded and developed magnificently over the last 20 or 30 years with more and more monitors, more and more ways to take care of very critically ill patients. I think the other thing on on the technical surgical side certainly is the minimally invasive and robotic surgeries, the new instruments, able to do things that we weren't able to do before in a very safe manner, which that's pretty spectacular too. It's
2: all
1: about the sensors.
2: Interesting what you say about anesthesiology because people say, you know, among the most important inventions of mankind, you know, the wheel, fire, you know, whatever, anesthesia, which actually permitted surgery, was one of the most important but little heralded advances in human history, right? Absolutely. So let's jump back into the medical profession itself. I know you have some concerns about how it's evolved over time and what it's evolved into. Share some of your thoughts on that. So, from
0: a purely educational point of view. What's happening in the United States is is that, as I said before, we're still basically in the model we had for the last hundred years. We have one more big problem in the United States that other countries don't, which is the financing of our trainees. So people who are training in surgery have a salary. It is a relatively low salary that is paid by the hospitals and not by the schools that are training them. And what that means is they can only be placed in hospitals that have a salary. In addition to that, though, the number of positions was capped a long time ago. And so if you look by the federal government, and if you look now, about half of residents in the United States are being paid for in cash by the hospital, not reimbursed by government. So they view unequivocally the residents as employees. Okay, they're paying money and they're doing work. Which is very detrimental to training because we can only put them where there's a salary, first of all. But it's very hard to dictate how much work versus learning they're doing when basically the people teaching them are not controlling their salary.
2: So it sounds like, you know, there's somebody once said, uh, we have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. It sounds like the medieval institution pieces is still hanging in there in this profession. It is.
0: And, and and it's uniquely, I mean, it's a big source of discussion right now in all, all areas of surgical education. And in Canada, for example, they're moving to a truly competency-based model, which I think is much more like what NASA does, which is you really have to learn and master this initial skill before you go on to the second more complicated skill. In surgery, you just basically go with the surgeon who you're assigned to and help them do whatever you're capable of helping them with, which is very different.
2: Yeah, it is different. I mean, in the world I grew up in, uh, you had gates you had to pass through. And if, if you were not good enough to get through the gate, they weren't going to let you through because there was too much at stake.
0: We sort of put you in the pasture and there's a bunch of gates all over the place and you have to get through all of them eventually. But different people own the pastures, so we can't control it as well as we'd like to. So what's an alternative approach to that? I mean, is the government
1: Government paying the salaries or schools having stipends or what's how
0: do you fix that? Well, so most countries and again, this goes back to a third big issue with medical training, but also with medical practice right now, which is how corporate it's become in the United States. If you're driving people to work because of the profit they're going to make for the institution they work in, you create a very different work model than having the mission of providing health care to a country. And we are the only industrialized country that does not have universal health care. And it's going to have to go to universal health care if we're going to get out of this quandary, because right now we have the highest burnout rate, suicide rate. You name the, the, the parameter, doctors, healers of all kinds, nurses, everybody are suffering under this system. So that's going to be the real linchpin. The big change that's going to happen in the next generation has to be taking some of this profit motive out of medicine so that everyone can get basic health care and the people who are trying to provide it are not not experiencing this moral distress of working, being employed by someone who is a
1: corporation but working for our patients. You know, it's interesting. All the conversations about universal health care focus on the patient. I think this is the first time I've heard it from the health care professional side. It's just an interesting lens on it that's not often discussed.
2: It's almost what you're describing, Mary, is is almost like a newsroom where, you you know, you may have an owner of a newspaper that has political views and all that kind of stuff. And there's an editorial page for that. But in the newsroom, you're expected to be in that different culture. It's almost as though you're asking the medical professional, hey, we need to have people who are surgeons first and they're compensated that way. The culture is that way. And they're not necessarily working for the corporate entity. Is that? A fair encapsulation?
0: Well, yes. And I, I don't think people really understand how intensely this has changed. I mean, I was talking to someone today who was uh, a chief of a group in a, a hospital that I won't name, who basically had the administrators of the hospital come to this surgeon, so it's a, a surgical specialty, and say that they really wanted the nurse practitioners to see every patient in clinic, no doctors in clinic. They wanted the nurse practitioners to choose which patients needed surgery and have the doctors perform the surgery because that would be more cost effective. And I wish that was an exception, but that's the sort of thing that's happening now everywhere. And until, you know, it's, I think there's going to be a huge grassroots revolution in this. I think that um, people who go into medicine to heal other human beings have finally just had it.
2: Wow. Interesting. So. I don't want to date you Mary, but my understanding is you might have been one of the early women in this field, uh, which shocked me when I heard about that. I would have just guessed that women have been in this field for a long, 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 long time. So what was that like? Was it hard and have things changed <laughs> for young women coming into this profession?
0: So I trained at Baylor College of Medicine where Michael Debakey was the chief, and I actually ended up ranking at the highest in the match because as a woman in that era, if you went to an easy program, you basically were discounted. And Baylor at that time under DeBakey had the reputation of being one of the hardest programs in the country. So I matched there. And I'm the third woman who ever finished that residency. And I was the only woman for all five years I was there. It was both magnificent because the training was incredible, but it was like being in a emotional and technical combat zone all the time. There was like <laughs> there was there was no hardly any downside ever for five years. I joke that I don't remember my internship, but it's actually pretty much true because for eight months out of those 12 months, I was on every other night call, which meant I had 12 hours off every 48 and was working straight through the other 36. So yeah. It, that's you know, another problem. <laughs> yeah. well, it, And all of that, the you know, the duty hours that were put in place for resident training have improved that. The whole culture has absolutely been improved, but we're only one generation away from that. And so there's still uh, huge cultural gaps that we're working on and making better. But right now it's about 50% of residents in surgery
1: are women. Oh, that's a huge increase, actually. Yep. So what advice would you give to someone who's interested in going into medicine and even surgery in particular, given all of the things that we've been talking about?
0: Oh, I still think, you know, I do believe that this current generation that's in medical school, residency, young faculty, young surgeons and doctors are going to change the system because ultimately we can't have a civilization where we don't take care of people's health issues. And occasionally it has to kind of crash before you build it up again. And I think that's what's going to happen. It is still an incredible profession, but they've got a big task ahead of them, which we desperately need them to do. Mm.
1: So you tell them to go for it. Absolutely, get ready to reform.
0: Well, and also, the, <laughs> but the other part, and I, I've often said this to a lot of people, because I do get, you know, I'm very involved in a lot of thinking about education and policy, and and so I think in that sphere. But on the day to day sphere there's not another human being or any policy that can take away my ability to sit in a room with another human being and talk about what I need to do to help heal them. Yeah. And that is so powerful and so rewarding that you can get by a lot of other stuff to be able to have that privilege. Wow. Well, that's a good that's a good note to end
1: on, Mary, that uplifting power of the medical profession to help people. And we really appreciate you being a guest on The Adrenaline Zone and I really enjoyed the conversation and learned a few things that I didn't know from having other conversations with you before.
2: I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic. Thanks for for being with us. Well, thank you so much for
0: having me, and I I really appreciate it.
2: That was Dr. Mary Brandt, pediatric surgeon. I'm Sandy Winnefeld.
1: And I'm Sandra Magnus. Thank you for tuning in to another episode
2: of The Adrenaline Zone. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. The best water makes you feel truly good inside and out. Learn more at Culligan.com. Make sure to share
1: our podcast with your friends and check us out on Instagram. Our handle is simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.